guest speaker from Gore this morning, coming all the way up to um, share with us a great message. So, Reid, thanks for coming all this way. Please. You were here with us last year, so right. it's yep. nice to have you back, and um, yeah, we're excited to see what you'll be sharing with us, so over to you. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. thanks. Um, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 5, is where we're going to be hanging out today, um, just so you can see that I'm not actually making up this stuff. Um, so by way of intro, I've got two kind of pictures for you. Our family recently went on holiday to Wanaka. I'm not sure if you guys have been there or seen this, but they have Puzzling World there. Anybody actually been through Puzzling World? Thank you for the enthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> the, it's cool. It's definitely a tourist trap, but that's all right. It's entertaining. Um, one of the things that I mean, it's known for is just the optical illusions, right? You go in there and they've just got stack loads of them. But one of the things I was thinking about is all of those illusions, the only reason they work is when you're standing in the right place looking at it in the right way. If you're standing in the wrong place or if you're standing too close or off-center, they don't work like they're supposed to. You have to have the right perspective or else your whole worldview really gets thrown off. So that's my first picture. Uh, the second one is that binoculars are a good thing, especially if you're a hunter. They're quite useful for seeing far away and seeing things that you couldn't normally, uh, but they are not good to live with on all the time. If you had binoculars on all the time, uh, things that in reality are quite small to you would seem quite large, and things that are insignificant in reality to you would seem like very significant things. Uh, so here's my feeling today. Some of us have had binoculars on for far too long, and some of us are convinced that we're standing in the right place looking at the illusion in the right way, and maybe we're just not. And so the invitation today is, hey, maybe we just need to take off the binoculars. And the way we're going to do that uh, is by looking at Joshua chapter 5, but we're going to pray first. So if you would pray with me. Um, Father, for all of us, I thank you just for the opportunity to be here. I pray for each and every one of us that you would open up our hearts and allow us to hear what you would have to say to us this morning. God, if there's things that need to shift and change in our hearts or in our lives, uh, may we be humble enough to receive that and give us the strength to actually follow it through. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So before we actually look at the text, I want to give you a little bit of background and catch you up to speed about what's happening in the history of the Israelites up to this point. So we're looking at the beginning of the book of Joshua, um, but... God's people, the Israelites, have not too long ago just come out of slavery in Egypt. God raised up Moses to lead them out of slavery in quite a miraculous way. He parted the Red Sea for them. Uh, and the reason he led them out of slavery is to get them back to the promised land, the land that he had set aside for his people uh, for a long, long time. And they're all excited to get there. Trouble is, that first generation got to the promised land and they got scared, so they didn't want it. So God said, all right, you're not going to have it. And that whole generation wandered around in the desert for 40 years until the next generation comes along and they actually want the promised land. 
this time, God parts the Jordan this time, and once again, they miraculously cross uh, water, and now they're standing in the promised land with this new generation. Moses is not their leader anymore. Joshua has taken over the reins, uh, and they are excited. Now that they've crossed the river, um, the preceding things in this chapter, uh, they get circumcised, all the new generation, which is just a way of saying all of these nations that have moved into the promised land that is yours, you are not like them and you are separate from all of them. And they've also celebrated the Passover, which is a way of just remembering what God has done for them and that it is only by the blood of the Lamb that they're saved from certain death. So this new generation is standing in the promised land with Joshua at the head and they are ready to take it at last. The first city they come across in this promised land is Jericho. Now Jericho is not the biggest city in the promised land, not by a long shot, but it is very heavily fortified. It is specifically designed to resist sieges, which is the main way they did warfare back then. It was a lot cheaper and a lot safer for the attacking army to just sort of surround the city and lock it off and starve the people out than it was for them to actually attack the city. The only problem was you really couldn't do this with Jericho because of the walls that it had, but also because of the way that they designed their city. So what they had done is their city is built on this rock and they had actually dug down into the rock to store these massive reserves of food so that if any attacking army came and tried to starve them out, they would have far more food than any army trying to attack them would, so they could just wait it out. And the cool thing is, archaeologists have actually found Jericho and they've actually found these big pits in the ground with grain back from this time period. Uh, So this stuff is real. This isn't just stories. Um, And if the city is that heavily fortified, and if it's that big of a deal, why didn't the Israelites just go around it and kind of leave that one be? And it's because if they went around it and sort of attacked the next city on the list, then all the people of Jericho would be able to come along behind them and basically take all of their stuff. Nothing would be stopping them taking their wives and their children and their flocks and all of their stuff. So the reality is, if you're the Israelites and if you're Joshua, Jericho has to be dealt with. The question is just how. After 40 years in the desert, the Israelites definitely didn't have any siege equipment. Even if they did, it wouldn't have helped. At absolute best, they have swords and spears and maybe some arrows. And this is where we're jumping in to today. And this is the weight It's resting on the shoulders of this new leader, Joshua. So, Joshua 5, and we're just going to read verses 13 through to 15, says this. Uh, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. If you're the sort of person who enjoys taking notes, we're going to see four things come out of this passage. We're going to see the challenge, and then we're going to see the correction, we're going to see the conviction, and then we're going to see the community. Right? Challenge, correction, conviction, community. Here we go. The challenge. So Joshua, says in the beginning, was by Jericho. Probably what he's doing is scouting it out or brainstorming or praying or coming up with some answer to the question, how are we actually going to attack this thing? Maybe he's even trying to sort of calm himself down a little bit, not try and freak out. Uh, How are we going to take this city? And as he's doing this, he comes across a man with his sword drawn. And being the good, strong leader, Joshua starts asking questions. Man, who is this guy? Is he here to help me? Is he here to hurt me? And again, being the good, strong leader, Joshua goes over to him and Joshua initiates the conversation. Hey, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? In Joshua's mind, as he asks the question, there really are only two possibilities. Are you for us or are you for them? The challenge that Joshua lays out, man, you tell me, who are you supporting? Which brings us to the correction. Joshua lays out the challenge, are you for us or for them? The correction comes, no. The answer Joshua is given basically stops him completely in his tracks. It instantly deconstructs every preconceived notion that Joshua has about how this conversation is going to go. And this sort of thing often happens when you're talking with Jesus. How do I know that he's talking with Jesus? Why would I say that? I'll give you three reasons. Um, The first one is that Joshua worships him and calls him my Lord and the Bible doesn't correct him. The second reason is his very presence makes the ground holy, which if you know your Bible, Moses had virtually the exact same experience with the burning bush when he encountered God. And finally, I didn't read this, but in chapter 6, the Bible goes straight in and it's the same person talking Uh, It goes straight into telling Joshua the battle plan for Jericho. And once again, he's referred to as the Lord. So essentially what's happening here, literally what's happening here, is Joshua is asking Jesus, are you for us or for them? And Jesus comes back and says, no, possibly with a bit of a smirk. I want to unpack some of the implications of this particularly in light of our divisive culture that we are sitting in at the moment today. Everybody has beliefs that they hold. Some of us hold them quite strongly, but many of the beliefs that we hold are not necessarily clear-cut and often quite controversial, are they not? Whether you're a Christian or not, you do not have to go far to find controversy. Are you pro-national? Or are you pro-labor? Are you pro the vaccine? Or are you anti the vaccine? 
Are you pro-certificates or anti-certificates? What about the mandates? Are you for them or are you against them? You could go, are you for Donald Trump? Are you against Donald Trump? <laughs> you could go, are you for the legalization of marijuana? Or are you against it? Look, this doesn't even have to be just in the secular world. You can do this same thing even in Christian circles with theology There are divisive issues all around us today, but I want to pause here and lay out two crucial clarifications about what we are talking about today and what we're definitely not talking about today. The first thing that has to be said is that for, or if you are a Christian, hopefully for biblically informed reasons, you land on one or the other side of a lot of these issues. And I'll say that again because it's so important. If you are a Christian, hopefully, for biblically informed reasons, you land on one side or the other of a lot of these issues. The Bible is the only infallible source of authority for us, for all of our faith and practice. And so every belief that we have right now should be able to be traced directly back to Scripture. So if we were to step back and ask, and actually be honest, why do you believe what you believe about any one of those given issues? If I were to pull you aside after the sermon today, and we were to sit down over a cup of coffee, and I were to just ask you, hey, where do you land on the vaccine? Or which government do you support? And why? What would your answer back to me sound like? Would it be something like, uh, well, the way I look at certificates is... Or would it be, man, according to the stuff I've read online, the government is... Or would it be something like, my aunt's half-sister's neighbor's colleague is actually an expert in vaccines, and they say, whatever... Or would your answer back to me on any one of those things be something like, well, the Bible says this, and so I believe this. Which one would rise to the surface first for you if I actually started to push you about it? Are you taking your preconceived ideas to the Bible and trying to make them fit together like pieces from two different puzzles? Or are you actually letting the Bible be your first and final authority in everything that you think and everything that you do? The second thing that has to be said before we really dive into this today is that there are definitely topics that are undebatable for Christians, and we are not talking about those topics today. Abortion murder, adultery, sexual immorality, dishonesty, drunkenness, pride, are frequently and repeatedly spoken against in Scripture. And those are not the topics we're talking about today. We're talking about the ones that aren't necessarily clear-cut in Scripture. Okay, That's very important that we get that. As we wade into these things that are often controversial, uh, it's wading to just create this unhealthy division amongst everyone. Really, this isn't uh, specific to Christians 
what it tends to do is it tends to create these tribes of people who all roughly believe the same thing and think in the same ways. We're naturally drawn towards people who think like us and believe like us and act like us. Uh, And media and social media even encourage this. Like the algorithms on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter are all literally designed to show you things that you already agree with. They actively encourage this us versus them mentality. As we willingly or unwillingly get pushed into these different tribes, the simple but subtle lie that we start to believe as Christians is that God is on our side and is not on their side. We actually start to believe that God believes what we believe uh, and not what they believe, that He is for us and that He is against them. And we start saying things like, man, that person supports labor. How can they even call themselves a Christian? Or we say things like, man, how can they say they're a Christian and share all of that anti-vax stuff on Facebook? Or we say things like, man, they're obviously not a serious Christian if they support the legalization of marijuana. Let's be really clear about this. The pearly gates in heaven are not painted blue. Is God for national and against labor? (laughs) Just so we enter mission. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um... Look, the pearly gates aren't pointed, they're not painted blue, right? Is God for national and against labor? No, He's not. The parable of the sheep and the goats is not talking about the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Is God for the unvaccinated and against the vaccinated? No, He's not. Jesus is not in heaven wearing a Trump 2024 hat. Is he for Donald Trump and against Joe Biden? No, he's not. Trying to make God take our side over their side is like arguing about which teacup best holds all the water in the ocean. Is God for us or for our adversaries? No. Which brings us to the conviction. Okay, So he's not for us or for them. So who is he for? What's interesting here is that what Jesus does is he does not even answer Joshua's questions. Joshua gives him two options. Are you for us or for them? And in verse 14, Jesus says, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Joshua asks about his position And Jesus gives them an answer about his identity. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Jesus doesn't answer Joshua's question. He actually reorients Joshua's heart. What he's doing is he's saying, man, remember who you're dealing with here. This is God and you are not. The encouragement for us is to remember who we're dealing with as we discuss all of these topics take our eyes off of our individual tribes and fix them on the God of everyone. He's above it all. Just like it's a heart issue for Joshua, it's a heart issue for us 
two, God does not love you more because of the stance you take on any one of these particular topics. And He doesn't love people less who take the opposite position as yours. What happens when we adopt this God is on our side mentality is that it gives us this moral high ground and the ability to look down on others because we feel like God is on our side and not on theirs. And that's the opposite of the Gospel. If this is happening in our lives or in our hearts or on our social media accounts, this is a clear indication that we have forgotten the heart of the Gospel. The Gospel is this. What we actually deserve, every single one of us, is hell. We've all broken God's commandments. And because God is infinitely good and infinitely just and infinitely holy and infinitely loving, the punishment for breaking His commandments must also be infinite in hell. That and that alone is what each and every one of us deserve. But the Gospel is that God didn't give us what we deserve. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't and then take our place and take the punishment that we did deserve so that we could have His life that we didn't deserve. It's all a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says it this way, Man, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is a gift, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. And if it is a gift, that means that you can't contribute to it in any way whatsoever. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. God doesn't love you more because of your political affiliation and He doesn't love them any less. He doesn't approve of you more or less because of your vaccination status and you don't move up on His all-time favorites list because of your beliefs on certificates. Why? Because His love for you is not based on any of that stuff. His love for you is based totally and completely on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's not about any of that other stuff. So if you've got other people around you who happen to land in the opposite tribe as you, we have no right to look down on them in any way because whether you agree with them or not, you need Jesus just as much as they do. So if God is not for your tribe and He's not for their tribe, then who is He for? God is for God. And that's a good thing. The question is not, is God on my side or is He on their side? The question is, am I on His side? Which brings us to the final piece, the community. Joshua's response to Jesus' answer is actually really telling. Notice that in verse 13, uh, Joshua went up and he walked up to Jesus. He's the one taking charge. He's the one that asked the question. He's the one that heard the response. And then in the last half of verse 14, what does he do? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and says, What does my Lord say to his servant? Can you see the heart change? Joshua goes from you tell me demanding answers to, and you tell me, like a humble submission and worship to the God of all. His heart has been completely flipped around. 
This is my hope for you and your church or whatever church you might call home, that we would be a people marked not by tribalism and by conflict, but by a humble submission to the Lord of all. What if we were actually less worried about getting people to join our particular tribe uh, and more worried about getting people from every tribe and nation and tongue to kneel before the throne of the Almighty God. There's a much bigger perspective here. This is where all of the beauty and the power of the church comes from, from people loving their neighbors and their enemies. Matthew 5, from people counting others as more significant than themselves. Philippians 2, from people who say things like, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to this quote um, from an article that I read not long ago. Uh, He says this, Many Christians, though, are disinclined to heed calls for civility. They feel that at the moment everything they value is under assault and that they need to fight to protect it. I understand that, he says, and I feel under assault sometimes too. However, I know that the early Christians transformed the Roman Empire not by demanding, but by loving. Not by angrily shouting about their rights in the public square, but by serving even the people who persecuted them. Which is why Christianity grew so quickly and took over the empire. But I also know that once Christians gained political power under Constantine, that beautiful, loving, sacrificing, giving, transforming church became the angry, persecuting, killing church. They forgot the cross. Just like the battle plan that was drawn up for the Israelites at Jericho, our battle plan for this thing is counterintuitive as well. And as Christians, we go and love even our enemies. And we serve even the ones we disagree with. And instead of taking up our swords and going on the attack, we put down our swords and we pray. That's the way forward. And we fix our eyes on God and what He's doing and care more about our community than our particular tribes. That frees us up to be truly unified despite whatever differences we may have. One final quote um, from Charles Spurgeon talking about one of these issues from their day. He's just talking about something called high churchism, which doesn't matter what it is. Just know that it's one of these issues that's debatable of the day. And this is what he says about it. Um, He says, Now I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, which must be a lot. Um, But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves Jesus as much as George Herbert did, and I don't ask whether I should love him or not. There is no room for question. I cannot help myself. Unless I stop loving Jesus, I cannot stop loving those who love Jesus him can you say that about those people that you disagree with do you have that love of christ for them despite the disagreement one final reminder if 
He can be a church of people who say, man, Father, you tell me what to do, instead of pointing at each other and saying, you tell me what side you're on, then your success is guaranteed. Like if the gates of hell cannot withstand the church, then I promise you that COVID or the government or mandates or certificates will not be able to stand a chance either. So practically, are you more passionate about your particular tribe or about the kingdom of God? If you're honest, what is your attitude towards those who believe differently than you? And finally, are you willing to consider that maybe today you actually need to repent from some things that you've been believing or attitudes that you've been carrying? Maybe you need to put down your sword, fall on your face, worship the Lord, and say, man, you tell me what to do. Let's pray. Father, for all of us, I pray that you would give us the humility um, to actually be willing to hear what you are telling us to do. God, may we not um, be marked by controversy and by division, but may we be marked by a beautiful unity that comes not from all being the same, um, but being able to work together despite our differences. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks very much, Reid. That was insightful and and refreshing just to kind of be reminded again of what we are called to be like as Christians. And I want to just r- remind us to refresh our perspective that Jesus has called us to set us free from the stuff that divides and distracts uh, and disheartens so many people in our world. And Jesus calls us to live a life that we were created to live, to be on the side of truth and grace and love and goodness and um, uh, many of those things that Reed's kind of highlighted. In fact, if you are a Christian here this morning, then you have been rescued, you have been transferred, you've kind of picked your side. This is how one of the first Christians puts it uh, from Colossians chapter uh, chapter 1, sorry, verse 13. Can you just click that up there, Joel? Uh, God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom with his blood and forgave our sins. It's the, it's the side that we're on, and as Christians, we get to remember this event through what we know as communion. We're reminded of the price that Jesus paid to reconcile us back to God, to, to bring us back to him and sacrifice his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And so this morning is our final act of our time together. We're just going to pause and reflect to um, remember that we have been forgiven for our past wrongs and our future wrongs because nobody's perfect. <laughs> but also I encourage you to gratefully receive that love and that mercy and that power that Jesus has for you. So when you're ready, uh, there's a table at the back with three different uh, stations. Feel free to take some bread and some juice as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us.